Well, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 8. We're still not done with Matthew chapter 8. Uh, our text for today is a familiar one, and it's familiar no matter who you are. At some point, you've heard this particular section of Scripture. Um, but I want to warn you, to all of you who, who can confess its familiarity, starting in verse 23, um, I want to warn you that the moment familiarity corrupts into boredom, uh, or when, when, we, when we want to say, I already know that, without re-examining the text, that's the moment that our reading of the word becomes sin. There is nothing, there's nothing in Scripture that we can't read a million times without finding just a, a new nugget of truth that's been there the whole time. So again, we're going to open up to Matthew chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 23, and... and uh, I, I, I know, I know, I know, I know that at some point you've heard this passage preached with the application or the, the encouragement, Jesus calmed the storm over the sea, he can calm the storms in your life. That statement contains some truth, but, but we really need to, need to take that and kind of shove it to the back of our minds. We want to examine this passage and see, see some fresh truth, some, some things with fresh eyes, uh, kind of forgetting what we've heard before so we can be encouraged and kind of work our way to that in a way, in a way, because we, we want to see what, what Matthew may have included this for in his gospel. So... Um, if we have fresh eyes, if the Lord is gracious enough to grant us some fresh eyes, I promise you'll glean some much-needed truth for your souls, for your hearts, uh, and for, for your daily life. So with that cautionary introductory material that I'm sure somebody's reading a rotten tomato for, let's go ahead and, and read our text. So Matthew 8, 23 to 27. And when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Just starting at the beginning, we're going to work our way through the verses bit by bit here. Uh, notice how verse 23 is worded. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Um, yeah, I keep forgetting this every single week. I apologize. One of these weeks, I will actually make it so the PowerPoint is visible without remembering halfway through. <laughs> Yeah, but if you if you could hit it, I can't hit it from the back. It's like it's like shooting a sniper rifle, right? Some people have good sights, and I just don't have it when it comes to hitting that little teeny mirror on there. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> um, notice how verse twenty three is worded, where it says, "When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him." Uh, that may not actually seem like a big deal. Wow, that's a huge pin. Um, but that particular phrase 
has been used to spark controversy, especially over the last century or so, in regard to what happens here. And the reason that it sparked controversy is if you compare it with, the, with Mark's telling of the events in Mark chapter 4, you read that it wasn't uh, Jesus who got into the boat and the disciples followed him. It was actually the disciples who got into the boat and Jesus followed them. So which one is it? Is it, is it that Jesus is the one who went in and, uh, and the disciples followed? Or is it that the disciples got in and Jesus followed him? Again, it seems like something small, but the... Oh, I turned on captions. How did I do that, PowerPoint? <laughs> it seems like something small, but, uh, but it, it, it's been made into a big deal. And these sort of controversies arise predominantly because people assume that when you have a whole book like the Bible, there has to be things that contradict each other. And if you start with that mentality that it has to contradict, you'll find contradictions all over the place. So when, when we assume the harmony of the scriptures, that's when, that's when we can start seeing what, what's really meant uh, by the text. So, how how do those things happen? Did G, or, uh, how how are those things reconciled? Right? Did Jesus get in first, or the, did the disciples get in first? Well, let's let's remember our context, right? Let's remember what's actually happening uh, in these verses. Jesus has set up base in Capernaum, which is a fishing village on the north-ish corner of the Sea of Galilee, and Peter's house was there, but Peter worked about two miles away. He was a fisherman. Uh, typically, what would happen is the fishermen would leave their boat in their working spot, right, at their fishing spot, and then they'd walk back to their house wherever it was. They wouldn't boat all the way back because, honestly, the Sea of Galilee is a pretty tempestuous sea. It's not a very fun ride. When you have a fishing boat, which is, you know, big enough for some workers, but it doesn't really have, like, lower decks, it, it doesn't have what it has now, you don't really want to run into a storm and lose your boat. So you dock it in a safe port instead of having to take it all the way back. But at this point, G, er, the Apostle Peter had been using his, his boat and the other, the other apostles had been using the boat to ferry Jesus and the other apostles around. So, uh, so, so when Mark says... That, that, they, that Jesus got into their boat, uh, specifically he says they, the disciples, took him with them in the boat. That, that actually is talking about a possessive taking, meaning it was their boat and Jesus got in it. Not that they got in first, but that it was their boat. Why, why does that matter? Honestly, because that's the same way it is today. When Jesus wants, wants us to do something for him, he doesn't make us get better stuff. He takes what we have and he joyfully uses it. And that's, that, that, that's wonderful news because that means whatever lack of resources you have, whatever lack of ability, whatever... whatever um, thing that you do, you can use it to the glory of God. You can actually have Jesus use your meager resources, whatever it is, 
Jesus rode in a stinky fish boat. Have you ever gotten on a fishing boat, like a, like a boat used for fishing? It smells. And wood can, or I'm sorry, metal can be washed. Wood soaks in the stench. So this is a really stinky fish boat, and Jesus rode in it, and even fell asleep in it, rested in it. You don't have to have great things to do great things for the Lord. Instead, he just uses what, he, what you, you have to give him. And uh, also, the, the reason I want to point that out is because of the way Matthew words that very first verse. And when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. That's exactly what disciples of Jesus do. They follow him. Now, in a very different sense than then, Jesus physically getting in a boat, it's really easy to follow him, right? You know where, where he is. Nowadays, it's a little bit different. And yet, it's still the same. So our, our first point that I want you to pull out of this is that Christians follow Jesus wherever he leads. Disciples of Jesus go with him wherever he goes. Again, whoever you are, whatever means you have, whatever lack of resources you carry, Jesus will use them. He will. Wherever he leads, Christians go. They go with him. Even if it leads into a great storm like it does in this text. So let's move on through the verses. Verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Now last week we noted that trouble tends to arise uh, for Christians, right? Wherever Christians are, trouble tends to follow. And that's the same thing with Jesus. Wherever Jesus goes, troubles arise. Usually, they're, they're, they're storms of people, right? They're storms of people causing problems for Jesus. They don't like what he's saying. They don't like what he's doing. They're jealous of him. Whatever's happening in this time of his ministry, wherever he went, he wasn't there that long, and everything just went boom. Everything just exploded, and not in a good way. And so he kept moving. That was the point of an itinerant ministry. And storms like this one naturally arise, the, the Christian answer to why, why do catastrophes happen? Well, because this world is wrecked by the sin that we've brought on it. Not because of global warming or, or climate change necessarily, but because of our sin, this world is screwed up. Things happen in this world. Sinkholes that are 15 feet in length and 12 feet deep pop up. Why? Because this world is unstable, because we've messed it up. Our sin from our first parents, Adam and Eve, broke this world, and then we continue to perpetuate it. So storms, like this one on the, the Sea of Galilee, I almost said ocean, this one on the Sea of Galilee naturally occurs. I mean, the, these guys were fishermen. A couple of Jesus' apostles were experienced fishermen. They knew the dangers of going across the Sea of Galilee. If you look at the Sea of Galilee, so I, I, we spent three and a half years in Chicago, right? There's something called lake effect snow, that because the lake that's right next to Chicago, Lake Michigan, now I forget, is so huge, it creates its own weather patterns. So while Chicago might be blanketed in snow and ice, if you go just a little bit further west, it's sunshiny and nice. And why? Because of the lake effect. It goes pretty far, but the Sea of Galilee is similar. 
It can be nice and all around. Jerusalem could be bright, shiny, and sunshiny, and wonderful. And then at the Sea of Galilee is a tempestuous storm that's causing flooding all over the place. That's the result, again, of sin. So nowadays, when people follow Christ, when we follow Jesus, when we, when we go wherever he goes, we end up finding these storms too. Storms that are caused sometimes because of us being Christians, and other times we just walked into it. And in this situation, the boat was being swamped. That's a sign of absolute peril. You don't always have buckets. <laughs> in, in the first century, they didn't always have buckets to help bail. When the boat was being swamped, it's not like they could just pump down, a, you know, get a pump there and start pumping it out or turn on an electric, electric pump and get it to start evacuating. No, when the boat starts getting swamped, the boat starts sinking. It gets scary. This was something that could have ended all of the disciples' lives, right? Uh, imagine, imagine we had our entire government staff on Air Force One, and it all of a sudden starts to break down. Uh-oh. <laughs> that won't end well. And this is something similar. It's Jesus and his closest disciples. They're all there, and this, this, this ship is literally sinking. Yet what's surprising about this isn't so much a storm, because storms, again, they, they come up. But what's surprising is Jesus' reaction to it. In the midst of this boat going all over the place, these great waves, water going inside of it, Jesus is doing what? He's asleep. <laughs> totally knocked out, resting peacefully. So sound asleep in the midst of these waves and waters that were getting in the boat that the disciples had to wake him. Now, this wasn't, this wasn't a sort of, well, look at verse 25, right? I, I, I love how, how this is written because you can read it almost flat, right? And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Do you think it sounded like that? You think that's how they said it? You think it was like when your mom comes in to wake you up? Jesus. Jesus, wake up, Jesus, it's time to get up. No, these men were gripped by terror. They're, 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 save us, Lord, we're perishing. We're, we're sinking. Man, this is going down. We're done. Can you empathize with that? Have you ever been in a situation where, where you followed Christ? You went where you were supposed to go. You're doing the things that, that he wants you to do. You're doing the right thing. You're serving God. You followed him into a circumstance, a geographic location, a situation uh, where, where maybe it looked good on the outset, but now you're dying. You're perishing. Save me, Lord. I am perishing, that last ditch effort of crying out to the, to the only person in the universe that can help you in any capacity. You know that feeling, right? You've been in that feeling at some point. Every Christian either has or will be in this situation where panic grips your soul, where you question the, the, the rightness of your path, the, 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 the accuracy of what you've done. Did I do the right thing? I am perishing. 
that painful feeling of doubt. I hope we all know what that feels like. Even You might even at that point be questioning the goodness of God. Jesus, you might be saying through tears, don't you love me? Don't you care about me? I'm perishing over here. I'm dying. Where are you? Surely that's the sort of panic the disciples faced. Maybe they made the wrong choice in getting in the boat. Maybe at this point they're thinking, maybe I made the wrong choice by following Jesus. Maybe we shouldn't have done this at all. Gotten into this boat on this, this, this sea. But this storm has a purpose. It's preparatory. It's like grade school. <laughs> there's, a, there's an actual purpose to grade school, I promise. Uh, creating a foundation of learning. No, every kid loves grade school because they're with their friends and they think they're spending more time with, with their friends. But this, this is not a good thing. This would be like grade school from hell, right? Like <laughs> this is a moment that is awful, terrible, scary, and, 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 and Jesus has a purpose in it. You can rest assured, friends, that whatever storms you face on this earth are preparing you for an even greater suffering. Why is that good news? Why would that be good news? That, that the hard times you go through are preparing you for greater suffering? It's because when you face trials, you don't wonder about God's goodness as much as you did the last time. I can guarantee that this moment was was quintessential to the growth of the apostles so that when they faced martyrdom, when they were standing before a, a, a lion that was going to consume them in the Colosseum or when they were about to be crucified like Jesus, they thought of this moment and they thought of what he said to them. When you go through trials and sufferings, Later on down the line, you won't question God's goodness as much as you did before. You won't have that same pain of panic and doubt. The question Jesus asks in verse 26 actually should hit us really hard. And he said to them, remember, it is, save us, Lord, we're perishing. The ship is sinking, Jesus. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Just pause and think about that question. From, from If you were on a boat and the boat's doing this, <laughs> so that centrifugal force is the one thing keeping you in there as water's getting in there, and somebody asks you, why are you afraid? Hello? <laughs> Look around. I'm sure, I'm sure at this point the disciples would have been wondering as those words rolled off their master's tongue, are your eyes open? Do you see the storm? Don't you see the water in the boat? Do this, Jesus. Move your foot a little bit. You feel the fish wriggling by your foot? We're dying. Duh. Don't you see it? They are losing it, man. They're going to Jesus. They're, 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 they're freaking out. And then come the words that actually drag them back to reality. It's not just, why are you afraid? 
It's why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Before Jesus does anything, remember, remember, they're, they're, they're just crying out for help. They're not saying, hey, Jesus, can you take care of the storm for me? Thanks. They're freaking out. They're losing it. They're saying, they're, they're saying we're perishing. We're dying. Save us. Save us, Lord. But before Jesus does anything, he calls them back to their sense of trust in him. That, too, is exactly what it's like now. As you go through trials and storms and, and, and troubles and you face things that are terrible, Jesus is the only one who's going to call you back to reality. As you sit there in your panic, you ever have that feeling of anxiety where it feels like your chest is compacting, like your heart is being squished, like your rib cage just turned into fingers and they're just doing this? For me, for me, that's almost every single test I've ever been in. When I, when I go to like a test in school, like that's what it feels like. I start to freak out. But then Jesus asked this question, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? And my, my, my rib cage starts to lighten. Because point number two that I want to draw out is this. Nothing can stop the plans of God. Just to throw some verses at you, Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Job 23.12, but he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he, God, desires, that he, God, does. Isaiah 14.27, for the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Answer, no one. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, which if you look at your bulletin, is part of the section we read. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of, all, of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose what is a storm even one that's swamping your boat from stopping the purpose of the Lord You see, embedded in this rebuke is not some disconnected from reality, over-spiritualized, floating-in-a-cloud statement of Jesus. It's something practical, something we forget. The Lord accomplishes everything he wills. All he intends to happen will happen. To paraphrase Paul in Romans 8, can turmoil or tribulation stop God's plan? Can distress? Hey, how about persecution? Or famine? Or poverty? Or danger? Or nakedness? Or sword? No. None of it. None of it can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, and none of it could ever stop God's plans from coming true. Why? Because whatever he has purposed, he will do. There is nothing, nothing more practical than us recognizing that God's plans will take effect because, uh, because then and only then can we avoid the panic that the disciples are facing right now. Their freak out session, completely understandable. 
And yet their freak out is because they've forgotten that God does what he intends to do. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Have you forgotten who God is? He who sets up and deposes kings? Who brings captivity and rescue? Who shows compassion and mercy on multitudes upon multitudes? Why are you afraid? Won't he accomplish what he wills? We, like the disciples, have a role to play in God's plans. And that role, I promise you, is not panic, but concrete, assured trust in him who is leading us, even in the midst of storms like this. Notice also that Jesus did not say that the storm would not have happened if they had doubted, right? We can say that about Peter when he drops into the water, when he's walking on it, and he's like, why did you doubt, man? But that's, even, even that needs some, some unpacking. But Jesus did not say, hey, if you wouldn't have doubted, guys, the storm wouldn't have happened. Storms happen. Turmoil happens. Trouble happens. Whether you like it or not, and I guarantee you don't like it, whether you like it or not, storms happen. But what we're called to do is to not panic. What Jesus does in the last bit of verse 26 is incredible. And so incredible that it caused the disciples to, to, to stand there, whoa. Whatever they asked him to do, whatever they expected Jesus to do, it was not to rebuke the wind and the waves and have it stop. That was not what they were expecting. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been amazed. But the purpose of Jesus' rebuke to them was a reminder that his people need to be faithful regardless of what's happening around us. Sometimes, friends, our best response in the midst of trial, suffering, pain, turmoil, storm, is to be like Jesus and lay our head on a pillow and find rest. To sleep. Sleeping this is, one of the, this is one of the greatest applications you can ever hear from the Bible. Going to sleep is often an act of faith. Why? Because sometimes we think if we were to stay awake, we might accomplish more, we might save more, we might do more, and yet God apportioned an entire day for rest. If you read Genesis 1, to through, 1 and 2, you find that that seventh day, God, God rested. Why? Because he was tired? No, but because he could. And Jesus here is sleeping in the midst of a storm. Can you sleep in the midst of a storm? If you can't, question your faith. And not in a bad way, but go to Christ and say, help my unbelief. He actually answers. The God who even calms storms rested his head on a pillow in a potentially life-threatening situation. It was not out of trust for his disciples to keep him alive. It was out of trust that his father would not allow them to fail in his mission. The fact that Jesus rebuked the storm was a great grace of Christ. Instead of just letting his disciples suffer through it, Jesus calmed it for them. That really is the grace of God, right? When something could last a whole lot longer than it could, and then it suddenly stops. 
That's the grace of God. When we're spared longer struggles than, than we might have had uh, otherwise. But let's conclude where the disciples concluded in this instance, in verse 27. Many of these guys, again, were experienced fishermen. They, they've seen these storms die down naturally. They know what it looks like for a storm to just kind of recede. And you guys, if you were awake last night, you would have seen the storm eventually recede, the clouds eventually part, but it's an eventually thing. This one, this one is so immediate that the disciples, who are experienced fishermen, stand, stand around going, uh, what just happened? What incredible mercy Jesus displayed here. And let's, let's savor it, remembering the times, again, when God grant us, granted us such grace, such undeserved favor, uh, that, 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 that the men marvel, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So in your own life, what sort of man is this, Jesus, that the winds and the sea, my coworkers, my boss, my job, the government, my car... Oh my gosh, the number of times I've prayed for my car to make it from point A to point B is more than I'd like to admit. But my car, my credit report, my bank, when they grant, a, a grant something that honestly I don't think they should have, or when the large tree that's by your house falls and narrowly misses your house, what sort of man is this that, uh, that, that the sneaker wave that almost took me into the ocean, my kids, the drunk driver that narrowly missed me, or anything else would obey him? What man is this? What sort of man is this? When God shows us such mercy, he does so because he intends for us to finish our mission that he's set us up, and we should marvel at it. We should be amazed that God would care Man, if I were God, I'd sit in a nice throne and I'd have grapes manifest out of the air and I'd eat them. I'd pull a Julius Caesar, right? I wouldn't care a rip about anybody. Why? Because I'm selfish. It's just like all of us are selfish. But that's not how God does it. God shows incredible mercy and he always fulfills his plans. So listen, he may or may not calm a storm or trouble in your life. That is not the application of this. It is a comfort. It can happen. But I wouldn't expect him to calm the storms in your life every time. Why? For two reasons. One, if you expect that he will, you will not marvel at his work when he does. You just simply won't. Because if you expect it, if the disciples expected Jesus to rebuke the wind and the waves... They would not have been so shocked when it happened. So when Jesus calms a storm in your life, don't expect that he does it, but pray that he does. You can pray just like this. Lord, I'm perishing. But, but you need to marvel when he does it. You need to give him praise. Reason number two, I wouldn't expect him to calm the troubles and storms. It's because, honestly, you need a much stronger ground of faith in this world than just temporal struggle ending. If Jesus is your cosmic gumball machine, where you pray the right prayer, putting it in the quarter, twist the knob, and the right result comes out every single time, you've got a world-focused theology. And that is not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus does not call us, or Jesus does not just grant us relief from the troubles of the day. No, instead we need something better than that. We need to know that he 
his plans never fail, that he holds us fast, that he can do all things and that no purpose of him can be thwarted, Job 42.2. Nothing can stop him from doing what he intends to do in you, through you, by you, and in spite of you. That's a much better hope than just calming the storms of life, friends. Much, much better. Take hope in the unwavering power of God to do what he wills. Walk with confidence. Drive your boat through the storm, knowing that the Lord never fails. Following him will put you in these storms. But nothing can make him fail or nothing can make him cause us to fail to reach the shores he intends. Eventually, we'll face eternal shores of wondrous mercy. That day may not be today, but that hope of being brought into the Lord's presence is enough. Let me pray for you before, before you go. God, I pray for everyone here and everyone watching online and everyone that, that was not able to come today. I pray that you would grant them the faith to not panic in the midst of storm, but to be resolute and confident that you will do as you intend, that you will do as you will, and that nothing will stop us from arriving exactly where you want us. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace, saints.